All right. Well, I appreciate you guys being here. We're going to start today a new series, and this series is called Get Up and Grow. Get Up and Grow. Now, I know that over the last three years, we've used the word grow as our vision word. And by that, it's, it's an acronym that stands for Ground, Righteousness, Outreach, and Worship. That we intend to grow in ground, which in fact we have done and are currently paying that, that ground off. Righteousness, Outreach, and Worship, which is an ongoing process even beyond the vision that we have over the next three years. But because we have primarily talking about grow over the last few months as we've done our building fund program as a way to discuss our giving, I want you to know moving into this, this is not a discussion about giving. This is, about a, this is a discussion about how we grow in who we are. And we're going to do that out of Ephesians chapter 4. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, we'll get started. I want you to bring your attention before we get started to 4-1. There's a single word that I want us to focus on, and that is therefore. This is a transition word. This is the hinge between two major ideas within the book of Ephesians. Therefore is there because it, in first chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul explains to the Ephesian church their, who they are that they are in Christ. And so there's these doctrinal teachings, these doctrinal statements of who you are in Christ Jesus. And in fact, if you'll go, and I challenge you to read chapters 1, 2, and 3, you'll hear in Christ, in Him, in Christ, in Him, over and over and over again, something along the lines of 20-something, almost 30 times, you'll hear something about being in Him. And so he's saying in the discussions of chapters 1, 2, and 3, that we are in Him and the doctrines associated, the teachings that we need to understand in regard to who Christ is and our relationship to Him. Now, as is any good teacher, they're going to explain the teaching first, and then they're going to make it applicable. And so Paul does that here in the transition, in this hinge statement. In, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, because you are in Christ, there are responsibilities that you have. Because of the doctrines, you have a duty to act a particular way, to be who God called you to be. And then he starts in chapter 4, 5, and 6 discussing what that looks like. And so we're going to talk in the four services through the chapter of the through the fourth chapter of Ephesians, to discuss how God expects us to grow in those duties. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is from 4, 1 through 6, which I'll get to in just a minute, to talk about how we are, we are called to grow, to get up and grow in unity. And so there's an expectation that if you are, if you belong to an organization, that you should act as that organization acts. If I am a sports player and I play football, I have to adhere to the rules, the regulations, and the standards of the game of football. If I don't adhere to the rules, regulations, 
in standards of football, then I can get kicked out of football. I can be fined for football. I can be set on the bench or be completely removed. The same with citizenship. If I don't act as a citizen, I can get in trouble for that, maybe even be kicked out of the country. If, if I'm an employee somewhere, I can, get, I can get fired. I can get three or four days off. I can get a verbal or written reprimand because there are expectations of who you call yourself to be. And so Paul is saying in chapters 1, 2, and 3, these, this is who you are. This is the team you play for. This is the citizenship that you have. Christ is your employer, if you would have me put it that way, if you would give me that grace. And because of that, there are expectations necessary of you to be part of that organization. And so he starts with unity. And I think he does this on purpose. He starts with unity in my mind because without unity in the church, in the body of Christ, we can have nothing else unless we understand who we are and walk according to who we are, being unified as God himself is unified with the Spirit and with Christ Jesus, then we can't possibly walk in the unity God's called us to. Our church will never do and accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish unless we act as one, one body of believers. We are here for a central purpose, a singular purpose, and that is to make God known, to glorify the name of Jesus. That is our purpose, according to our mission statement. That's the reason why we start with, we exist to be a place where people can come to know God. If we can't agree on this statement, we can't walk in unity. If we can't walk in unity, and this is going to sound harsh, but it's how I do, If you can't walk in unity, then you need to go somewhere else. If you can't circle the wagon around the mission statement that is Launch Point Church, that should be the church in my mind, then we can't walk together. You should go find someone you can be in an agreement with because two people can't walk together unless they agree with one another. And so we have to be people of unity. And until we become people of unity... We can't become what God expects us to be. And so I want to talk to you, like I said, verses 1 through 6, about the characteristics and the cause of unity, as Paul lays it out here in these verses. Let me read that section of text. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. So when I was in seminary, they, they, used, they taught us, Well, they tried to teach us how to write a sermon, how to get the idea, the principle out of the text. How do you determine what the author is trying to convey to the people he is speaking to? And one of the best ways to do that is look for repetitive words. 
If you could see the same word being used over and over and over again, that's probably the idea. That's probably the thesis for this particular statement. And in regards to this, as you see, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, that word is probably one. We are called to oneness. We are called to grow in unity. We grow in unity because none of us are quite there yet. We should always be striving to walk in unity, to consider others' needs above our own. And we're going to talk about all that in just a second. But the unity of the believer in the house of God reflects perfect or should reflect perfectly the God that the house serves. But we can't do that if we don't first understand that growing requires the right characteristics of unity. Verse 4 or chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore, I the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. So he starts out talking about the characteristics of unity, but he starts somewhere else. He moves to that place. He starts in verse 1 by saying, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. And I want to spend some time there because I can't walk in the characteristics of unity if I don't understand who I am. And first it says, the prisoner of the Lord. Paul himself called himself a prisoner of the Lord which means this Christian walk that we're called to, this unity that he's about to talk about, is not is obligatory. It's not optional. It's something you have to do. We are prisoners of the Lord just as Paul was a prisoner of the Lord. Now, I know that messes a lot of people up because we like our freedom. We like to be able to do what we want to do. But the fact of the matter is, you don't belong to you. You have declared Jesus Christ as Lord if you are saved. The Word says, declare out of your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you shall be saved. You should act as a prisoner of the Lord, which means we are to be obedient to the Lord as a prisoner is to award it. We don't get to make any of our own decisions. We don't get to live our own life. We gave up that option when we declared Jesus Christ as Lord and gave him that position of lordship in our life. I I once did a mentoring program, was involved in a mentoring program at the state prison, and I mentored a young man named Danny there who had been in prison for 20 years. And the mentoring program existed within the first six, six months before they got out to a year to help those people transition from prison life back into society. And so I would not just spiritually mentor him, but I spent time with him showing him how to write a check, how to balance a checkbook, how to find a job and keep a job, maybe even help him get one, how to get an apartment, or maybe even help him get one, and all of these things so that when they get out, they're fully capable of standing on their own two feet, as it were. Now, He had been in prison for 20 years. This is the reason I tell you that story. He, as a prisoner, made no decisions 
for 20 years on his own. I took him to dinner the first day he got out at Monell's. Shameless plug, if you go there, get the fried chicken. So I went to Monell's, got to the cash register. There's a couple in front of us. We're sitting there. He looks at me right as we come up to the cash register, and there was a Parmesan cheese shaker on the cash register with some toothpicks in it. You know how they do that? And he looked at me. He said, can I have one of those toothpicks? I said, yeah. And so he stood there. People paid. They walked off. We walked in, paid. We started to walk off, and I noticed that he still didn't have his toothpick. I said, man, are you going to grab a toothpick? He said, do I just reach out and grab it? And let me tell you, that's the life of a prisoner. He had to make no decisions for 20 years, so even the simplest of decisions, he needed someone to help him filter. This is the way we should be towards the things of God. We should act as prisoners of the Lord. Instead of concerning ourselves or or worrying about what we want, we should ask ourselves what God wants. We should think vertically between us and God before we start discussing anything horizontally in our own personal relationships. And so he recognized, or I recognized, that he had never had to make a decision. And because he had never had to make a decision, he wasn't quite sure how to make one. The fact of the matter is, none of us should be making our own decisions. I shouldn't ask the question, will this suit me? Will this benefit me? Will this create opportunity for me? Instead, we should ask these questions. How does this affect God? How will this action reflect on Him? What am I to do with the blessing He has given me or the problem I am facing? And how can I most please and honor Him? To move from a how do I, how do I, how do I, how do I, to how do I honor God is a sure sign of spiritual maturity. A spiritually mature person recognizes first and foremost that their life isn't their own and they're willing to give up their life for the Lord that saved them. So Paul says this, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I implore you, because you're not your own. I implore you. You know what implore means? Implore means I beg of you, I plead of you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. If you've been called to be a Christian, I implore you, as Paul implores, act like a Christian, which means to act as though you're a prisoner of the Lord. The very worst thing I think we could do to well, it's the best thing we could do to destroy our example to a lost and dying world is to tell people that we're Christians and then not act like one. Because people will believe you. If I walk up to somebody and say, I'm a Christian, more likely than not, they're going to believe me, and then they're going to watch me 
to see what a Christian ought to walk like. And if I'm not walking as I'm declaring, then what I do is I show them this is what a Christian looks like, which is to say this is what Christ looks like. If we're made in the image of God, intended to reflect that image to a lost and dying world, then when we do something contrary to what the image of God would do, then we cast a long shadow both on God and on the church and other believers. So he says, if you're going to be a Christian, which is your calling, I plead of you, walk like you're actually a Christian. Stop talking out of both sides of your mouth. Don't be righteous and standing strong and saying all the right words and dressing the right way in church and then going home or your workplace and living like hell. Because the people that see you living like hell are going to assume still that you're a Christian and they're going to ask themselves this question. Why would I want what they have when what they have isn't better than what I have? You want to know why the world is dying? You want to know why the church is shrinking? Because they can see no difference between the church and the world. And if there's no difference between the church and the world, then why not just stay in bed on Sunday? I had a guy tell me a couple weeks ago, he said, my wife and I have just finally got to a point where we realized, you know what, we don't, we don't really need the church in our life. You know why? Because there was some failure that happened that caused them to believe that. So I, along with Paul, ask you, for the sake of unity, be a prisoner of the Lord. Walk in obligation to lordship. I plead of you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. People say all the time, well, my calling is to be an usher. My calling is to be a pastor. My calling is to do whatever, be an evangelist. That's not true. You have a singular calling, and all Christians have that same calling. That calling is to be in Christ Jesus. You are called to Christ. You might be assigned or gifted to something else, but your calling is to be a Christian. So it's not saying here, walk in a manner worthy of your pastorate, walk in a, worthy, a, a manner worthy of your ushering, of your service. It's saying walk in a worthy worthy of the manner of Christ. Walk as Christ walked. Which presents us with the question, how did Christ walk? If I'm to emulate Christ, if to be a Christian is to walk as Christ walked, if in fact we are called to walk as Christ walked, which we are, then how did Christ walk? What can I do to emulate Christ to create unity? And the first of this list is humility, humble. It's weird to me that the beginning of all of these kinds of lists starts humble. Over and over and over again, you got to be humble. You got to be humble. You got to be humble. You know why? Because humility is the base characteristic of Christianity. You can't be a Christian if you're not first humble. You have to recognize a need that you can't meet for yourself. You have to realize that you are powerless to save yourself. You have to have a true, lowly mind in regard to who you are, who you really are. 
Not who you want people to think you are, but who you really are. And in that, call out to God. It's the only the humble that will be saved because only the humble recognize when the Spirit calls upon them that they need saving in the first place. It's the proud and the arrogant that walk as though they have the ability to save themselves. But let me tell you, that's not true. Jesus proved it over and over and over again by reprimanding the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe be unto you. Condemned are you because you think you have the power to be what you are, what you think you are, outside of Christ Jesus, and we can't. We have to be humble. What's this got to do with unity? You have to be humble towards one another. The church. There's, there's this frustration in me because the church pulls itself apart because it refuses to humble itself or the people within it refuse to humble themselves or the vying churches refuse to humble themselves. They think, man, I got to be greater. I got to be greater. I got to be greater. Can I tell you? I don't have to tell you. The Bible tells you the greatest among you is the servant, the humble. There's a lady that goes to church here. Her name's Sam. She shows up every week. And she cleans she sweeps, she mops, she vacuums, she wipes down the blinds, she cleans the children's ministry, she does all this stuff, takes out the trash, cleans toilets. Nobody's asked her to do that. That's just something she's volunteered to do. And because of her humility and desire to do it, the Bible says that she's actually the greatest. Because the servant is the greatest. Who's the greatest? It's not the one that vies for greatness. It's the person who serves. Why is that so great? Why is humility, especially in her case, so great? Because when people come in here on Sunday, the toilet paper rolls have been changed. I know that sounds silly. Trash cans are empty. The place smells nice. The floor's been vacuumed. Everything's put away like it's supposed to be. So people come in here. They see that we anticipated them coming. We desired for them to be here. So now they can get comfortable and actually receive here. If we didn't have people willing to be lowly in their mind, then so many more people would never be able to be greater than they are. John the Baptist said this about as Jesus was walking to, up to him. He said, he must become greater talking about Jesus, I must become less. It's my favorite verse, John 3.30. He must become greater, I must become less. And that's true. God in us must become greater, and we must become less. Can I tell you, when we're humble, we realize that the same is true of us and the people around us that in order for you to be greater than you could be, sometimes that means I have to be less. I have to be willing to step down so you can step up. I have to be willing to stoop to get lower than you so I can raise you up. That's the truth of humility. It recognizes that it has no desire for self-service. 
And because of that, the people around the humble person will always become greater. So humility, I, I just encourage us, be humble. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and gentleness. Ah. Gentleness, which means kind. Can we just be nice to each other? Church, can we just be nice to each other? Notice that the same word is in different translations, meek. That doesn't mean weak. It means meek. It means kind. Extend kindness to people when they look like they're hurting, when they need your kindness. Take the time to recognize and see people and meet them where they hurt. That's what kind is. Kind doesn't minimize itself. Kind acknowledges the needs of others. When people say, man, you're asking me to be weak, I'm not asking you to be weak. Matter of fact, I am convinced that it's impossible or likely impossible to be weak and kind. I know that sounds weird, but listen. I have to be strong to be kind because kindness is an act of conscience. If I'm weak, then I'm just weak. I don't have the ability to do anything other than be kind for fear that someone's going to hurt me. But it's the strong when they show themselves kind, truly show their strength. Does that make sense? It's like a lion who has been tamed or a horse who's been broken to the saddle. Neither of them, the lion or the horse, has lost their strength. What they have done is they have entrusted their strength into the, submiss- into the hand of the master. This is what we're called to do, to be humble and to submit our strength into the hand of the master so that others might be able to grow and see the kindness in us. And that kindness in us, they recognize is the kindness placed in us by the Holy Spirit. Unity is everything. We can't move forward unless we can move together. There's an old saying, if you want to move fast, move alone. I don't want to move fast. I want to take everybody with us, however long that takes. Let's get the mission accomplished. No soldier left behind, all the hoorah stuff. But we can't do it unless we're humble, unless we're gentle, Unless we're patient, which means long-suffering. I am not a very long-suffering person. My wife just shook her head no. I I struggle with patience. And this is primarily where I struggle with patience. If you just got saved, or you show up here and you're not saved yet, you haven't given your life to the Lord, you just heard that there's a rumor of hope here and you hope that it's true. And you come in here and you're half drunk and you pass out on the front row, which we've had people do. I'm patient with that person. You know why? Because I know they don't know. 
person give his life to the Lord 20 years ago, walks around acting self-righteous, knowing that they're living like hell outside of these walls. I have very little patience for that. You know why? Because they should know better. But the fact of the matter is still that many of them don't know better. They've either not been committed to discipleship, they maybe didn't have a teacher willing to tell them the hard truths, maybe they didn't have a mentor to come alongside of them and lift them up, whatever the reason is. The fact of the matter is we're all on the same ladder. They're just lower on the ladder than I am. You know how, I'm, how I become patient? You know how I cultivate patience with them? I realize that truth, that we're all on the same ladder. I'm just a couple of rungs above them on that spiritual ladder, that spiritual maturity ladder. But instead of criticizing them, instead of yelling at them, instead of ostracizing them, how much better would it be if we took three or four steps down the rungs of the ladder until we could grab a hold of their collar and pull them up to where we are? Because no matter where we are, there's somebody two or three steps in the rung of the ladder above us that we would hope would do that to us, myself included. There's never been a more humbling experience for me. Two of the most humble experiences of my life is when people that are above the ladder, above me on the ladder, have told me that I'm their pastor. Pastor Rick did it. Pastor Leonard did it. But you know what they've gently done? In the times where I haven't met the expectation, or this is going to shock y'all, in the times where I may have said something crazy, they didn't kick me off the ladder. They reached down, grabbed me by the collar, and gently pulled me up and loved me. They were patient with me. They were kind to me. They showed humility towards me. And the church as a whole needs to get comfortable doing that same thing with all of those around us so that we might ultimately take those things and as a family go outside these walls and make the family bigger. But not just that. I wish that was the end of the list. Showing tolerance for one another in love. The Bible tells us to be tolerant, which I, I'll be honest with you. First time I read this messed me up because my pastor told me tolerance is a virtue of a man with no convictions. Only a man with no convictions tolerates stuff. Except that tolerance is necessary to engage conversation. Now let me explain to you what I mean. Tolerance means to, to hear people say what they believe doesn't necessarily mean you have to believe what they believe. We can sit in the same room and tolerate each other even though you think completely different than I do. It's part of being kind and patient. Because I love you and I ultimately want to get to a place where I can tell you the truth, I'm going to tolerate you in love so that I can tell you the truth because I love you. But instead, we don't want to be tolerant, which gives us no opportunity to walk indoors that the tolerant can walk through. And then there's other believers. We're not even tolerant with other believers. 
We're supposed to be tolerant with one another. I'm sure somewhere in Launch Point Church, I'm not a cessationist. I don't believe that the gifts of the Spirit went away at the apostolic age. I believe that whatever the Bible says, whatever God has done in the past, He's willing to do now, whatever He's willing to do now, either by by His power or through us using His power, He's willing to do now and into the future. But there are Christian denominations that believe that that's not the case, that all those gifts stopped with the apostolic age when the apostles all died. But we can still walk in unity. You know why? Because cessationism is a secondary issue. Whether they speak in tongues or not is a secondary issue. Do they believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven? Then we can walk in unity. I can tolerate their secondary understanding. Do they believe that the Word of God is true and without, um, without error? They say yes then we can walk in unity even though I can't even though we don't believe in cessationism. Do they believe that God is a Trinitarian God, a Godhead God? They say yes. And I don't care if they believe in cessationism, we can still walk in unity. If they believe that Jesus is coming back for us, then we can walk in unity. There are primary things that we can be that we need to be intolerant about but be willing to be tolerant enough to have conversations with concerning and then there are things that we can be tolerant about because they just not primary issues we get so tied up in the church with secondary issues a buddy of mine calls those peacetime arguments that means these are the silly things we talk about when there's no war when there's war, what do I care that you know? I care that you know how to use your gun, you're accurate with it, and you'll walk beside me even unto death. That's the primary issue. Peacetime arguments in a church sound like cessationism. Wartime in arguments, church, sound like, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that the Scripture is real? Do you believe that the Trinitarian Godhead? Do you believe that Christ is coming back for us? These are non-negotiables that we can, should be able to walk in unity about, regardless of whether our church says Baptist or Church of God or non-denominational or whatever it says. The fact of the matter is God calls us to unity and that we are to be diligent in preserving it so that there might be peace in our house. That's the characteristics of unity. Can I tell you? Until you know the cause of unity, it's not going to matter. Growing requires we understand the cause of unity. Verse 4, 5, and 6, There is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. To be unified, you must understand that the Godhead is unified. After all, what are we trying to do but reflect the Godhead? This is what we're called to do. We're called to reflect and be an image bearer of God. And as He is unified, so we should be unified. You're all, well, how does this say that He's unified? 
because 4, verse 4, talks about the Spirit. Verse 5 talks about Jesus. And verse 6 talks about God. Let me show you this. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. So by the Spirit, that's a capital S, that's Spirit, Holy Spirit, by one Spirit, we have become one body. We are all together as a body of believers because the Spirit of God is in us. If the Spirit of God in us is in us, the Spirit of unity should be in us. I love that I, we do a prayer meeting here every now and then. We'll, we'll get together and decide we're going to have a prayer night or something, and somebody will inevitably call me. They'll say, Pastor Jim, I can't make it. I've got work. I said, well, just pray where you are. You know why I say that? I don't say that to let them off the hook for not showing up. I say that because because we are in the Spirit when we pray, because we all have the same Spirit inside of us, regardless of where we are praying from, we are all in the throne room of God praying. And we are all one body. So start acting like we're one body. I challenge you, if, if you want unity in yourself, you're not going to go home and chop off your foot. Walk as one body because we have one spirit. And in that one spirit, we have our hope. It's by the Holy Spirit that we're sealed to show that we have a hopeful inheritance, that there is eternal life for us. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Who do we have to declare as Lord to be saved? Jesus. So there is one Jesus, the only name under heaven for which one can be saved. And that comes by one faith, by faith in Christ Jesus. You can have faith in a turtle, but that faith, turtle faith is going to send you straight to hell. You're going to have one Lord and one faith in that Lord and one baptism, which is to be fully submerged in that faith in that one Lord. Oh, yeah, that's right, Pastor Jim. You preach. We need to get more people baptized around here. That's not what the Bible's talking about. It's using the word baptismo, which is the same word for baptismal or baptism. But it's the fact that we are completely immersed in Christ Jesus. Remember I told you chapters 1, 2, and 3 declare what we have and the doctrines of what being in Christ look like. And so he's saying one baptism, all of us have been fully immersed in Christ Jesus. And as fully immersed in Christ Jesus, we have an obligation to unity because by the Spirit which He sent to us, we are of one body. And that one body has only one hope. And that one body, that one hope, that one Lord has one God and Father. And that God and Father is over all, through all, and in all which means he's over all, which is sovereign. He is through all, which is omnipotent, and in all, which is mean omnipresent. We serve a God that is everywhere, all-powerful, all-knowing, and in control. And he is in unity with the Son and the Spirit. And just as he is in unity, 
so also we should be in unity. It's not enough for me just to say you should be humble, you should be kind, you should be patient, you should be all of these things. You have to be all of these things because the Godhead is all of these things. And God has equipped us to do it, to be it. It's time the church set aside its petty differences and focus on God instead. Amen? Until we focus on God instead, we're not going to get it. We're not going to be unified. Our focus has to be right. I heard an illustration one time about a, a lady who went up to her pastor and she said, Pastor, I'm leaving the church. And she was all vehement. She was mad because the people around the church had said, done some stuff crazy that she didn't agree with. And so she starts telling the pastor all this stuff. So-and-so did such-and-such, and then this guy did that. And I'm leaving the church. And pastor looked at her and said, just fine. Feel free to go. But if you want my blessing to go, I need you to do me a favor. She said, what's that? I said, she said, go to the kitchen, get a glass of water, and fill it all the way to the top. When I say all the way to the top, I mean to where it kind of bubbles over the lip. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It's not quite spilled over, but there's some tension, surface tension. Once you take that glass of water and walk around the sanctuary three times without spilling a single drop. She thought it was pretty silly, but she wanted the blessing of the pastor to leave, so she goes to the kitchen. She fills up a glass of water. She walks into the sanctuary. She walks around the sanctuary three times without spilling a drop, but she doesn't walk like she normally walks. She walks intentional and with focus. She's walking like this because, after all, she doesn't want to spill a drop. She doesn't want to lose any. So she walks real slow and real steady until she finally makes it back to the pastor. He says, Pastor, I've done it. I've not spilled a single drop. The pastor looked at her and said, that's great. Let me ask you this. As you were walking around, did you see Miss What's-Her-Face do such and such? Well, no, I was watching this glass of water. Well, what about, what's his face? Did you see him do such and such? No, I was focused on this glass of water. Well, what about this other thing? And he went through all of her complaints, and she said, no, I was focused on ensuring I didn't spill this glass of water. He said, that's right. And if you'll focus on God and the unity of the church, the way that you're focused on that glass of water, you won't see all these things that are creating disunity in you. This is what we're called to do. We're called to keep our focus right. And we do that by recognizing who we belong to and walking in the characteristics the Spirit of God gives us and grows us in so that we might be unified. Amen? That's my prayer. That our focus be right that we all carry our glass of water. Help those who need help. Don't belittle them. Love those who need love. Lift up those who need lifting up. Be long-suffering with those who need long-suffering. And I know there's a bunch of them out there. But if it wasn't important, we wouldn't have been told to do it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you. Thank you, God, for your word, that it's spoken to us so simply, that you didn't make it so complex that we couldn't understand it. And God, as we understand this text, I ask that you grow humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, 
in us. Teach us lordship. Teach us to act as unified as you are with Christ in your spirit. God, I thank you that we have the opportunity to, we have the ability to, because of the spirit you have placed in us, or you would have never asked us to do it. God, our desire isn't unity for the sake of unity, but unity for the sake of glorification, so that you might be glorified through our togetherness, through our oneness. So, God, I just lift this church up to you, but not just this church, every church in our community. Let us walk in unity to declare who you are so that there not be a person within this community that doesn't know you. We praise you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.